0: Welcome to Stories, a thread within the Protein podcast that features the stories behind the people at the intersection of community, culture, and technology. In this episode, I chat with Sam Walton, the founder of Whole and Corner magazine, which recently celebrated its 10th birthday. We cover a wide range of topics, from the importance of creating a place to refine your craft, whatever that might be, discovering the previously unheard voices of makers around the world and how new generations are responding to traditional craft techniques it was recorded in our new studio in tisbury where we also have a selection of hole and corner prints on the walls i hope you enjoy it sam good to have you mate thank you for having me great to to uh great to have you in the space you were top of the list (laughs) uh thank you for uh, you and Johnny uh, in terms of where do we start with people that we want to hear from uh, in this area and noted if you haven't already pictures on walls are pictures from book um, if you observe and so appreciate that um, they make our space look uh, even better. Mm-hmm. Um, so where should we start? Yeah. Um, 10 years of Hole and Corner, congratulations. Thank you. How does, how, Although, does it, how does it feel?
1: It feels great. Although literally last week I had a whole bunch of messages on LinkedIn saying, congratulations on your anniversary. And I was like, oh, what's that? Oh, it's 11 years. <laughs> <laughs> it's obviously 11 years since I quit my job um, with the idea of starting Hole and Corner. So was, I think it was, um, I was working at Spring Studios in Kentish Town. Um, in 2012, uh, we had moved to Dorset in 2010. Um, so I did two years of travelling from Tisbury to, to London and then to uh, up through town, to Kenshi Town, to the creative agency there. Um, and a combination of yeah, village life and train travel and having some time to... As a creative, you know, if you get those moments where you can stare out the window, usually something materializes from that. Um, and, um, yeah, and I kind of uh, I've been toying with this idea that grew over a course of about six months whilst I was traveling up and down. Wait, How many train trips is that? Well, I, I actually, I, did, I mean, it's probably not that interesting for podcast material, <laughs> for my train travel, but I was actually staying just two nights a week in London. Um, and so I was only ever away from home for for a couple of days at a time, and it was a really nice. The pattern worked really well. Um, but yeah, I, I I had a big passion for magazines from very early age. I think probably when I was about fourteen or something, I was introduced to the world of magazines uh, from a, from a family friend. Um, and and whilst they took a bit of a hammering during the internet, you know, the emergence of the internet and everyone. kind of like the death of print and all these things and actually there had been quite an interesting resurgence in independent publishing around probably i guess probably 2008 2007 2008 moving into a period when i thought about maybe launching my own publication and um so yeah i mean this is where you see Kim Folk on the wall there they were quite early early in there in serial and uh yeah, inventory which was a men's mag at the time which was and and kind of I was buoyed by the fact that that was happening and also actually I'd worked with so many talented people through the years of working in magazines and then later becoming a creative director that thought well yeah we could probably produce a magazine or I could produce a magazine mm-hmm. and um and there'd be lots of interesting folk out there would be uh, would be keen to to do that um but what would it be? What would it be and what would what would we what would i kind of what would the focus be i suppose um and i had with spring studios i was working with several kind of british luxury brands as well as some international luxury brands and their stories were coming increasingly were becoming about the uh, i guess the provenance of their products and like the quality issues and things like that so bally the swiss brand i was working with them a lot um, I was a, a regular shopper to the uh, all the various independent butchers and bread makers and cheesemongers and things of East Dulwich where we lived in London at the time. And I felt that the, the food movement was quite a good indication as to where things might be heading for the rest of the kind of things we spend our money on. Uh, whether that's clothes or furniture and, and and actually thought, well then there could be something interesting there. And um, and then Dorset life suddenly upon you kind of living in a small village community, drinking in your local pub, meeting uh, all different sorts of, you know, walks of life and, uh, and, and really sort of in, engaging in conversations with people that I just knew if I'd lived in London, there's no way we would have ever had a conversation It's just, you know, you stick with your tribe and you kind of hang out in that way. And it was actually really refreshing for me to suddenly to have these conversations with dairy farmers and and hear the struggles that they were having for their product and the price they were getting for it and the amount of work they had to do for it. Uh, The tree surgeons arriving in and sort of like understanding what they had to do and, you know, hurdle makers. I mean, like I've never heard of anything like hurdle making before. What, so those, so what, is, what is hurdle making? It's to do with fencing and, and like farm and fencing and sort of literally weaving kind of uh, like willow and things like that. So anyway, check that, it might be a, I'm pretty sure that's the case. Um, but, um, and uh, and so, so there's a sort of, I guess these three elements that were um, was something that I felt that could be interesting to launch a publication and a platform to celebrate these, these skills and these voices that perhaps weren't really being heard or, and, and, and this idea of sort of crafts people and the people behind the scenes who do these kind of amazing skills and uh, th- that, that frankly weren't being talked about. And, and there wasn't really, you know other than Crafts Magazine, the Crafts Council, there wasn't really any other, didn't feel like at that time, there wasn't really any other platform celebrating those talents and um my feeling was that with the experience i'd had within the fashion and luxury world for for sort of 20 years um if we could bring the talent i've been fortunate enough to work with that into that space it would be a really interesting uh coming together of of kind of showcasing those skills on, on in a piece of print and on a website that would normally be reserved for the world of art or fashion or luxury or something. And the craft just didn't have that. So, so it was, you know, I made a, I made a dummy magazine of, of Hole and Corner um, and we'll come back to the name thing, but um, we made a dummy of the magazine and I had a whole bunch of stories that I'd found uh, from various other, you know, magazines or websites and things, and, and, and things that I just made up, the idea of certain editorial stories, put that together Um, And and went on the road for a couple of weeks through London and and meeting with photographers and writers and sort of saying, got this idea, would you be interested in contributing to this concept? And and literally everyone went, yep, love it, really into it. And uh, and yeah, it was kind of resounding really, sort of, okay, let's, let's do this. Um, so that what year was that? That was two thousand and thirteen. Was the first publication came out in May two thousand and thirteen. So the work between when I quit uh, my role at Spring Studios was um, yeah October October twenty twelve. So I, had a, I basically had six months. I mean I quit the day I quit uh, Spring was the day my remortgage landed in my bank account. So I basically. <laughs> Whilst I had a full-time job, I thought, okay, I'm going to need some money. So I did a remortgage um, and it landed in my... I wrote the letter of my resignation. And the day the money landed in my account, I handed in my resignation. I thought, okay, I've got six months. I can live off this money for six months while I sort out what the hell I'm going to do with this project and how it's going to make money and things. And, um, yeah, so that, that was, yeah, so that, that kicked things off. Yeah, and we launched in May, in May two thousand
0: thirteen. Um, yeah. Um, so on the name, Holland Corner.
1: Well, I, I I've been looking for names. You know, I've worked on projects over the years. Looking for names for things is always a really complicated process. Trying to find something that resonates with with you and has enough interest and isn't too straightforward and all, all those elements. And um, and I stumbled across the phrase, which wasn't really being used in the English language anymore. It's, it, um, it, and it had this whole thing about a secret place or a life or activity going on away from public glare. And there were some other aspects to it. There was like kind of almost like clandestine operations and things so it could, you know, people could, there was a context of, you know, a hole and corner wedding, for example, where people might run away and do something like that. But for me, I kind of took the positive spin on it in that I thought, you know, you, and, and having now worked in that space for 10 years, but you know, you can walk down a street on a high street and you walk past a door that you, nothing, you, not, you know, who knows? And you walk through that door and suddenly you're like in this space and somebody has been working in that space for 20 or 30 years. And it's like an Aladdin's cave and creative and interesting. And that whole idea that certainly within the craft sector and the art sector, I suppose, is this idea of people working in their spaces in solitude quite a lot of the time and, and I thought that was really interesting. And I liked the way that Hole and Corner connected to that. Um, and and kind of, yeah, I mean, you know, I didn't put it out to a huge amount of audience, but you know, family and a few close friends and things and everyone's like, hey, I really like the sound of that. And, um, and it yeah, it kind of stuck. And then from that, uh, we had this whole idea around My Hole and Corner. So where people kind of say where their space that they might retreat to for creative thinking or just to let let their kind of mind run free and things like that so it's like we have this whole thing of like my hole and corner which has been a nice editorial strand over the 10 years which we, you know we send out a bunch of questions to a whole array of um of designers and artists and makers generally the creative community uh, musicians etc but it's always fascinating to hear about where people go for for those moments of
0: and any, uh, any memorable interviews, features, covers, um, doors that you've opened?
1: I mean, yeah, loads. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, for, like starting at the beginning. Um, so issue one, yeah. Well, I'm not going to go through every issue, don't worry. But uh, issue one was, uh, I had a few, th- you know, when you, when you start a project and a few things happen along the way that, make you feel that you're on the right journey here and, and I had quite a few serendipitous moments uh, and one such moment I was in Mayfair because I had a client nearby and I I was I I'd launched I I'd found a hole and corner you know we'd got ourselves on Twitter and, and I'm not even sure Instagram was there at that point maybe it was but Twitter certainly and I'd seen this company called the new craftsman and um and I was like, okay, that's, yeah, they look like doing something in a similar space. And the next day I was in London and I saw a flag with their logo on it in, in Carlos Place in Mayfair. I was like, that's interesting. So I just thought, and it's very unme, but I walked in and thought, well, I'm going to introduce myself to these guys. And they were like, oh, as it happens, we're we're having a lunch today and somebody's just dropped out, maybe you want to join us. And, and at that lunch was um, Kelvin Smith, Mr. Smith, from who's now in Bruton, uh, typographer and, and, and I have a big in the dummy edition of the magazine there was a whole thing about typography. And uh Gareth Neal, who's a very celebrated furniture maker and, and uh artist. Uh Robin uh Wood, who is a uh well was a wood turner, believe it or not, um, but also he was he was the uh head of the Heritage Cross Association. Um and suddenly I found myself at this lunch with all these people and I was just and I literally they were like, oh if you and I was just handing around this dummy magazine and just You just kind of knew you were like, okay, this is interesting um, that we've kind of all connected at this point. And Catherine Locke, who was one of the founders of The New Craftsman, um, soon became a contributing editor of Holden Corner. And she had had this amazing experience where she travelled right through the UK to, to find makers and artisans for their project um, and suddenly it was kind of like wow okay you've got these amazing stories and one such woman she introduced me to was this um lady called ella Carstairs, who was uh a she had a museum celebrating straw and corn corn work and corn artistry uh, straw artistry in in uh, norfolk and she said she's oh she's real she would love her she'd be great for for a story and i, I was phoning her for a I think I tried at least for like uh, i don 't know five or six days. I kept trying to call and eventually it was just ring for ages and eventually she um, she picked up and it turned out her phone line had been down for five days. She had had no contact with anybody at all because it was sort of you know during the winter months and we ended up on the phone for an hour and a half just chatting to this lady and she she was such a character, and we organized this shoot and we went and and she, you know, she was she was just so involved in Hole and Corner that she, you know, she wanted to help with the first edition and, you know, she was just kind of such an amazing... It, it's just kind of one of those moments where you're like, actually, I can tell we're going to meet really interesting and lovely people who are just frankly, like, amazed that somebody's interested in what they're doing. You know, that was, and that was, for me, you know, coming from what was becoming a faster and faster world of fashion where... It was becoming very celebrity obsessed, and I was like, actually I want the almost the opposite of this, and to be in a situation where you are kind of having to convince people to be featured, and some of them have, didn't have any kind of Instagram account, or mm. you know some of them not even an email, for example, and and so so the, so those stories, meeting I guess people like Ella, who was you know she was in her 80s, uh, Richard Batterham was a very celebrated potter who's sadly no longer with us who is literally in the next you know, two villages away from me that was an incredible visit um we got to travel a bit as years kind of as the magazine developed we went to japan to to meet a whole host of incredible artisans in kyoto uh, in rajasthan in india as well um but i think you know i guess yeah for me it's always been those Meeting those octogenarians who have just got so much to sort of download and infuse, but at the same time they never hold back as well, which is always so interesting. You're like, okay, right, cool, we're going we're to go there. But um, but you know, just um, that that was a real pleasure and a privilege to find myself sort of you know around a kitchen table, you know, having a cheese sandwich with these people. And meanwhile, I've got you know a photographer who might ordinarily be shooting the cover of Vogue, but actually he's there kind of taking portraits of, um, of, of this artist. And you're actually like, this is a really lovely experience and the reason I wanted to do it, I guess. Yeah, I love it. Um,
0: and I mean, so many good points there, but both. Sorry, it might be random. But, no, not at all, nah, nah. I love those stories. <laughs> and I, that is that's that's exactly what I was hoping to hear in terms of, <clears throat> it's the stories behind the stories right right that you don't yeah. often get to hear in terms of founding stories or the ways that you know people are contributing above and beyond the, those first expectations um, but to me and I I guess it's sort of it, it's not a world that I have any skill in <laughs> in terms of like a craft artisanal maker but there's an appreciation um, maybe because my dad was an engineer or just the 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 work that goes into things. Um, and that to me has always been, I don't know part of a you know, an observation of any kind of woodwork or or construction. And yeah um, uh, yeah, you know, uh, you know, with that, it's also, and it sounds like quite a solitary. Sort of uh, role, identity, behaviour—like your hole and corner—it's a private place. It's a place of escaping. It's a place of creating, and um, maybe just sort of tapping into that. Um, I guess sort of that relationship with your craft, as these individuals have loved and refined and uh, you know developed those over the years, because that goes beyond sort of commercial ambitions or needs, right? They're not doing this because they want to get paid and retire. They're doing this for the love. And I think that, to me, has always been the thread for anything that I've read in Hole and Corner. And I think that's, it's pretty rare in terms of recognizing that, you know, that Um, relationship.
1: Yeah, and I think I, th- I think I mean I touched on it before. I guess that was definitely a reflection upon the world that I was coming from, uh, or reaction even. Yeah, yeah. I mean definitely, yeah, it definitely was a reaction. And it was, like I said, it was a combination of a few things. Like moving to the countryside for sure was a big part of that. Um, but yeah, just that wanting to find real stories, I guess. Um, and actually it was kind of easier at the beginning because what happens, obviously, is the product develops and more and more people pick it up, um, certainly within the industry in terms of PR companies and brands and businesses. And of course, you know, you're approached about covering a lot of stories. As, and you know, I guess also I must point out, I suppose 10 years ago when we started doing this, craft was like a word you didn't use. Like you really kind of avoided it. It was, and and we had a lot of conversations about that. It was like, how do we, and my thing was about, I wanted to express the fact that the real meaning of that word is like, you know, you learn that process over a long period of time. You develop your craft. There's a big difference between craft and crafting. And, you know, I don't have anything against that. But at the same time, what I wanted to do was produce something that really celebrated the skills that the people had like, dedicated their lives to producing this work. And so I think the first, well, the first issue was called Stories of Dedication, which was always something that we quite liked, this idea that, and it it wasn't just about making, it was about people who collected things or people who, you know, it could have been writers or all sorts, it was, you know, this idea of finding and identifying hole and corner people. Um, But, I mean, I, (laughs) One thing I still haven't learned to this day is, is um, allowing enough time for my visits for Hole and Corner. And I haven't, been, as, as again, as the project got bigger, it became less, as with many things, you, you spend less time in the field, more time at your desk dealing with things. But actually in those early years, I would try and recce and most stories that we covered, I would go and visit the people beforehand. And I'd be like, right, I'm going to go off to Herefordshire. I'm going to go and meet this uh, clog maker. And, um, and then I'm going to go up to, L- Ludwell and C- ludlow and meet somebody else there a food guy and be like, okay it should be fine and then you know if you're allowed it maybe an hour an hour and a half to meet the clog maker and you know like, four and a half hours later you're still with the clog maker and you know, it's fascinating and you're like oh god i really must learn from these experiences. that you know a combination of yes they've got a hell of a lot to tell you about what they do b they spend too much time on their own <laughs> so it was this it was this kind of brilliant like you know like, Oh, yeah, OK, I must remember that I need at least three hours for any of these visits because there's no chance of getting here, there and everywhere. And, um, and actually, it's sort of when you give in to the fact that you just got to kind of move at a different pace. And that was, that was, a, that was a really lovely thing about developing on Corner was just kind of going, actually, this is like, it's got to be slow. You've got to take your time. And let's, you can, the long reads, really celebrate stories with you know, 16, 18 pages if you need to, just to kind of, whereas something, you know, one of the more commercial magazines, yes, they might tell that story, but they'll only really give them a half a page because they can't, because they're more commercial than us. (laughs) (laughs) And they need to make money. And uh, yeah, of course we did too, but at the same time it was very different. Uh, You know, I wanted to produce a magazine that was going to celebrate stories in a, in, in more like a book form, I suppose. Yeah.
0: Um, so <clears throat> you, you could so, say, and excuse the, uh, is that a pun, the Hole and Corner is your Hole and Corner.
1: I mean, it very much was. I mean, it, and it still is. I mean, it was just dividing my time between, you know, protein and, uh, my, and my garden shed, which is essentially my Hole and Corner space. I mean, I was really lucky when we when we bought the place that we bought in Font Magna, the previous owner worked in the internet he was building websites and things and um, he built himself quite a nice little office in the garden and and for me I didn't really use it uh obviously in that first two years when I was in the countryside it was just a sort of storeroom and then once I made that commitment suddenly oh there I was in my kind of little shed in the, in the backyard and and yeah and it felt like the right place to come up with this idea um and I mean you touched on it just before about you were talking about the skills side of things. I mean, I, I like Marianne, my other half, does all the DIY in our house. I am literally useless. Uh, I can hang picture frames. That is about it. And um, so, there's a certain irony of going into the world of craft. And and over the years, <laughs> we've um, we've developed, you know, different aspects of the brand through the events side of things. Um, we've run lots of uh, making and workshop experiences for people of which I've attempted to do a few over the years, but could never ever sit still for, because there's always, because you've got your own event running, there's always something going on. You know, I start something, but I'd almost never finish anything. And so I sort of gave up on the idea that I would ever actually be a maker. But I did say to every every kind of maker and artist and, and cross person that I met, and they would ask me that question, like, you know, what are you? And I'm like, well, mm-hmm, I make a magazine about you guys <laughs> yeah. and I put all of my craft into that. I've done it for many years. We get great photographers, we print it beautifully, we make sure it looks, you know, and that was kind of, that was the thing. I was like, okay, well, that maybe that is, that's, I guess, the craft that I've been, you know, kind of locked into. But but it was, yeah, it's kind of definitely amusing that I'm so bad. <laughs> Um, there's some already uh, there's already yeah yeah maybe maybe
0: one day um, and so building on that you know passion um, you know alongside the sort of expertise and sort of this blurring the line of uh, you know purpose and why why it's why why you do it why do any of the makers do it you know that commercial question is pretty I mean fundamental in, uh, I mean, any, you know, in any position. And um, I appreciate different circumstances and different sort of privileges and different sort of positions, but you know, your version of that story for Hole and Corner, you know, commercially, how have you, you know, how has that sort of evolved over the years And and and, you know, where, where is what's the question here? has it changed you know, yeah what, uh, what, yeah what you what you
1: wanted Holland corner to become um, yeah I mean I think there's there's I and mean, this is probably could be 45 minutes but anyway but um <laughs> I mean we yeah we've been through quite a through uh, we've been through a few different phases with hole and corner since since launch um, and the project started as very much something we did on we did alongside our other work. So we were all, you know, Mark Cooper who was the founding editor with myself. Uh, should probably we should touch on where where the team came from, but mm. um, but Mark and I had worked together many many years ago for a great publishers called Wagadon, which was published the Face and Arena and it's magazines. And and, and Mark and I. Um, I've lost my train of thought now, of course, but um, so we so we kind of started things there, and we were he was still writing, I was still working as a creative director on other projects as well, and so we did everything alongside that. But it, it was gaining some momentum for sure, and it was we were getting in the doors of certain brands and agencies, and we, and we had this <laughs> we had this really amazing almost before the second issue had even launched. So the first issue came out and I thought, right, okay, I'm just going to send this off to a load of marketing editors and uh, marketing directors, sorry, and and, and communications directors on a lot of the big brands. And we, we had this strategy quite early on with the magazine that we would, if we focused purely on perhaps some of the big luxury houses, we could maybe only have to take a few adverts and therefore not really affect... The interior of the magazine that was that was a big issue for me with magazines that I had that's kind of the reason I left magazines I was working for some of the bigger titles like Vogue etc way back when and every, you sort of suddenly realize that everything's almost bought and paid for like advertisers have such influence over the content of the publication you're like well this has become kind of so so at that point I went to work for advertising because so I just thought I might as well cut that bit out and just earn some money. And, um, but it was, you know, suddenly, so we thought, right, okay, so we shipped all these magazines out, didn't hear anything from basically 95% of the people, got a couple of leads. And then an email came in from Hermes. And I was like, wow, I didn't expect that to happen. Okay. So we got this meeting um, with Fiona Rushton, who was then then communications director of Hermes. And uh, Mark and I, we met, just on the street outside her maze. And we were like, right, pep talk. You, you know what you're going to say. You know what you're going to say. Okay, we've got it all clear. And we, we went in and and Fiona kind of, she got a glass of water, sit down. How can we help? And I was just like flummoxed completely. It's <laughs> like, uh, uh. And she was advertising, obviously. I was like... Yes. Yeah, that'd be great. Yep, yeah, that'd be great. And um, and it, it was just ridiculous. I was like, I can't believe this has just happened. And we kind of came out and we we're like, you know, high fiving and kind of really naff, sort of new dad kind of way. But um, and um, and nothing ever got easier. Basically, that was like the that was the easiest landing we'd ever had. Everything else we had to work so hard commercially, try and make, try and convince people to get involved. They had this. You know, Fiona said it right then and there, that they, they, they are, of course, an incredible luxury brand, but they had this craft heritage that they wanted to associate themselves with something that we were doing that they felt matched both what they were about from a luxury point of view, but also from a craft point of view. And that that was really exciting and interesting at the time. We did build on that as we went. And and there was definitely, you know, London Craft Week, I think, launched in 2000. And 15 so a few years after we we had launched like i mentioned you already the new craftsman that was was developing um later lueve craft prize would launch and that would become you know that would elevate the sector once again so there was the, the these opportunities arose and we we partnered with burberry for some events that they did in london uh during christ the end of Tr- christopher bailey's uh time there where they were really kind of aligning themselves with making and craft so that was a you know again so a lot of our work was around finding and identifying the brands that that had at least kind of connected with Holder and Corner from, from whether that was a craft within their brand um, or a kind of materials focus or, or a, uh, landscape or, you know, the, the, so, but it was not straightforward, but that was a route to um, uh, to, to commercial revenues for us as a business. And that's... We, we grew certainly through that period. Um, and then around 2015, uh, Nick Watts, who joined the business, had seen, uh, Nick was somebody I'd met at the school gates, literally in Fontmell, and it, uh, his daughter and my son were at school together. There's a certain simplicity that comes from living in the countryside. I'm sure a few of you guys will know about that. Is this sort of like, oh, you, you guys do something similar, you should meet. And like suddenly you go, okay, yeah, cool. Hey, why do not we work together? This will be good. And Nick was a, um, a documentary maker and TV producer. And, and he'd spotted what I was kind of doing with Hole in Corn and Corner, thought, you know, he could totally see what, what was going on there. And so Nick joined and we started to develop the, um, the plan a little bit more and uh, went to Crowdcube to raise some money. Um, And uh, that was an incredibly nerve-wracking process. But we did raise £212,000 on Crowdcube um, and uh, used various other media publications to kind of point the way as how you might build a a multi-faceted media brand in order to to create that. Um, And that was really a pivotal moment in that it allowed us all to really stop doing less of our day job and really fully focus on what we wanted to do with Hole and Corner and develop it. And and it was from that point that we started to do a lot more events. And uh, we used to run a really successful area of Port Elliot Festival where suddenly, you know, you had, you know, several thousand people would come and. do workshops over the course of a weekend you'd have queues of people looking to book spaces and things and you're like "Wow, we found our people kind of thing and was, um, so we spent several years developing different aspects of the business but i guess commercially probably it's always hard you, you, you retrospectively look back and you think okay well maybe if we'd spent more time really drilling into kind of things like subscription membership models, early doors, and really tried to find those audience who'd be less dependent on brands and marketing budgets and the things that then affect those marketing budgets, like Brexit, for example, and other kind of circumstances where suddenly if those, if those streams to revenue are cut out, then it becomes really quite complicated. And that's kind of where we found ourselves for a period of time um, where it was just actually really difficult to We'd built a model where actually it was very dependent on working with those brands. And and not only that, we'd also a lot of I think because of what we'd developed with the publication and the and the website and our social platform, a lot of brands were coming to us creatively, um, and also to kind of help them communications-wise to to tell their stories. And so we were doing quite a lot of design and websites and books for brands and all of these things and so kind of built an agency model off the side of that um which was great but it but it was you know we overstretched I think it was or you know whatever it was we sort of yeah we we tried to go bigger than perhaps at that point we should have done and it was a little painful for a while um and um but you know I think hindsight you look at things and go okay where, where how best do you build a a brand like that and you know, simple fact is I chose a particular part of the market which is probably one of the least commercial areas you could possibly think to, to produce a, a magazine about. And and that's why I did it though. I mean it was it was to celebrate that that sector and and you know it's been amazing to see it develop in the last 10 years. Not not hole and corner but to see the sector develop and to see things like brands like Loewe suddenly step in and go actually we're gonna run a graph prize that's going to be international, and um, and those things are, you know, um, and we can't claim to have, to, to to necessarily have had a huge effect on what they might have done. But I do think there's been a, this thing of like developing that space and trying to trying to tell those stories and to make people notice that they needed to be told, and that was that was really important.
0: Yeah, well, for sure, and
1: I love those stories, and <clears throat>
0: you know, recognising sustainability as part of that um consideration from a uh, consumer behavior from consumption and uh, you know rec- and uh, you know luxury has always not vocally but certainly champions or justified their their price points Um, Maybe not all luxury brands, but certainly the Hermes and and the legacy luxury brands in terms of quality and legacy and sort of generational products or generational items that you bring that into a craft or, you know, furniture and, you know, another country or any of these other makers, you know, they're not cheap, but, you know, these, they're not going to fall apart (laughs) and you will have these for, you know, for many many decades so you know that justifies you you can understand the justification of the cost and the price and the sourcing and the provenance of of, of those items Um, but i think from uh it's trends i don't know the word trends you know it's it is definitely it's a lot more visible in yeah, I mean, terms definitely, of just that appreciation, and this is beyond the aesthetic,
1: like the visual style. <clears throat> this is there actually a trend the element to it, without a doubt. I mean, like all kettle, there kettle is. chips are handcrafted, right? Yeah, so you've got there's, craft a that, there's a whole thing. There's a whole attachment that people are like. Right, hang on, we can sell stuff like this. Let's let's start. Like, what are our craft credentials? How can we get the word craft into our brand now? And like, whereas previously it was like, dirty word, don't go mm-hmm. near it so that is kind of weird the sustainability i mean there's a couple of things that you you mentioned there so i mean within the luxury sector it was quite interesting we got approached um and did some work with princess yachts so you're like thinking okay right massive like gin palaces pretty they're not a client anymore but you know they're kind of, let's say, you know, they're not exactly what people would associate Hole and Corner and Craft with. And, and, and we literally asked the marketing director, we were sat in a meeting one day after he'd been advertising for three issues. And we're like, out of interest, why do you advertise with Hole and Corner? <laughs> like, nobody's going to buy one of your boats from our magazine. So, and he was like, it's literally, I wanted to, to let people know that actually in Plymouth, there's 2000 people making boats that yes, they get sold all over the round, but there is 2000 people down in Plymouth making every part of a boat that is, you know, apart from the engine, which comes in from Rolls Royce, but otherwise everything is, and, and it was kind of amazing. And we went down and it sure enough, you're like, wow, this is bonkers. There was incredible, like great buildings where, I mean, one of my favorite bits of that space was they build the entire interior of your yacht cabin out of plywood. So you can walk around it and work out whether the toilet's too close to the wall or your bed's not big enough or whatever it is. Because it's so much cheaper to do something at that stage than actually have them build and then go, actually, it doesn't work for me. But it was kind of, it was a fascinating experience. And, and so I think, you know, along the, along the way, we met and worked with brands and businesses that changed your own perception of what that meant, I suppose. And Princess Shops was always quite a good one Cause you just you just think, ultimately, you know, people will kind of moan about luxury brands, and but actually, the craft sector would be, it would be dissipated without, without that kind of level of employment. You know, it 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 would just ruin so many so many lives in terms of crafts. Their skills would just be completely wasted. So it is quite it was quite an eye opener seeing those experiences. Um, in 2019 mark stepped down as editor and tamsin blanchard became editor of Holland corner tamsin had been a um, contributing editor for uh, maybe two or three years prior to that Uh, tamsin's background was in the world of fashion but very much from the sort of green credentials of fashion she'd written one of the first books around kind of sustainable fashion and and kind of the imprint of that business on, on on the environment and had been a big champion for that sector and so sustainability of course had always been a part of the process of a lot of the stories that we told but more just because makers wanted the best materials for their goods and they had an appreciation of the landscape and they you know they would by their very nature that's just kind of how they would be so it wasn't like it wasn't the flag you know it was and suddenly with Tamsin's involvement it was like actually this it, it it coincided i suppose with a much bigger interest in sustainability suddenly and like that was becoming a big topic of conversation and it certainly has in terms of our own editorial stories it's become a much bigger part of our our agenda i suppose mm-hmm. and, and and how tamsin will explore stories like that um, so so she has um, she's yeah she's had a, a big impact in in kind of changing the editorial narrative for Holden Corner mm. since t- 2019. And um, and that, yeah, that story of sustainability and, and yeah, I mean, it's definitely been a much bigger, bigger narrative for Holden Corner as it has for, Every, yeah, everyone really, <clears throat> yeah it's essential
0: I'm really enjoying this um, great <laughs> stories <clears throat> um, start thinking about questions welcome Kate there's some drinks at the back if you're thirsty um, you, have
1: past, you have to get past those 40 people <laughs> <laughs> right. um, it's radio they'll never know <laughs>
0: what's next sam where where's so this is ten years yeah is it well it's a good question is
1: Will. It? Um. <laughs> um where's your whole corner going sam yeah, I mean, as a creative, you're always kind of you know keen to uh to sort of change up things and try and do try and approach things in a different way and we We did 20 editions of the magazine in the same format. um, And that 20th edition came out the year of the pandemic. Um, It was the first magazine we did that year. Um, And for me, I was like, right, okay, that's it. I don't have to do it like that shape anymore. was 20 of them people aren't going to write in and be like oh why have you changed the shape of your magazine it's really ruined my arrangement on the shelf at home and all that kind of stuff you're like okay right 20 there you go done and so then we started to kind of okay well let's look at the format and change the way we do this and explore different things and and actually the book this year was was really the only thing we've published in print this year um and definitely for me it feels like you know that's a moment to kind of really look back and celebrate a lot of those stories. But within that, there's obviously lots of new, new content. And we did this. Uh, there's a, back, a section at the back of the magazine, uh, the book, sorry, that where we invited. It was an open invitation to makers to come and visit us in a space in London uh, at the beginning of last year, and bring an object with them that they would take to their my hole and corner space um and, and we took a portrait of everyone that turned up and it was like everyone was like oh you know will I make them and I am like no if you're here you're in it's, that's the deal it's like if you turn up we take your portrait we get your story you're in the book and um and and so I quite like that as a sort of I was like it's not you know it's not about an editing process and so it's really lovely to get the book produced for me just to get that done and go okay that's 10 years what next um I am thinking about like changing things up a little bit. Um, we've talked about it a little bit here today, but the, the my hole and corner element of, of, of hole and corner has in a way been the most kind of the clearest definition of what the, the name meant for a start. And also this idea, I think maybe with all the digital bombardment and the world that we're in now, actually is that element of hole and corner perhaps the bit that, should rise to the surface above the making and the craft side of things like it would still of course involve makers and artists and, and but it but really maybe we'll hone in on that element of of what we do and really celebrate this idea of your places and spaces mm. um, but this is very much work in progress a work in progress So I shouldn't really be talking about it on your podcast unless you, hopefully this podcast comes out in six months and it will be fine um but um but yeah i you know as yeah definitely always thinking about how how we could develop things and move things on um yeah love
0: it um I've got a question from the uh from the community um amy to be exact um Curious about what endurance and timelessness means within the context of craft and how people are responding to that today, consumers as well as makers.
1: I mean, I guess uh, whether this is going to be directly the answer to this question or not, I don't know, but certainly the things that I've seen in the, the emergence of um, sort of changing media and social media and things and what you've seen from perhaps some of the old and more traditional craft making society versus I guess the emerging talent that have come through and are able to really use these communication devices to, to get themselves out into the world has been really fascinating to see suddenly those platforms enabling people to actually take these professions on and try and do these things or quit their jobs. And, and without a doubt, we've met a lot of people along the way who have, it's a, it's a second or third career, and it's like, okay, this is I've done this, and now I want to do this. Um, and so, the endurance side of that, I suppose, there's a lot, of, lot of yourself that will go into all of that work. But at the same time, really, you have to be committed for quite a long period of time to to get to the point where that work, I suppose, will be celebrated beyond, further and beyond, I guess. Um, so I think it's it's getting it's getting that balance between, but at the same time, it's like you know having passions and hobbies and all those aspects and, and the work that world of craft is incredibly important for people's headspace, and you know we've seen that become a really big part of the craft world. I mean, we called our book Make Well, which was kind of slight pun on that that whole idea. Um, which incidentally came from... We met a leather worker in Bristol once and she had the words make well tattooed on her knuckles, which we always just thought was pretty amazing. So whenever she's there working, it's like, you know, she's got that message. You've got a photo of that, yeah. I hope. Yeah, Nick has got a picture of that. So, yeah, we kind of... When we started looking at events, we liked that idea of make well. But it was also... It was that play on, like, actually, you know, this is... There's there's more stake here as well. Yeah. And actually, if we've got... if If it can if it can work in that way as well, I think, you know, ceramics has been a big part of that as well, for sure. Um, So yeah, I don't know if I've answered that question or not already, but, um, (laughs) but, sorry. uh, What was the second part? It was endurance and what was the other word?
0: Um, (laughs) uh, What was the other word? Timelessness and endurance. I mean, it's a same thing.
1: yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, that's, 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 that's sort of built into Same craft thing. in a way, really. Yeah. I, I think it's um, certainly from you know. I think if anything's going to be beautifully made and with the right materials, then it should become a timeless item in that respect. Mm. Uh, yeah, with the know, care, the own, passion, the love, own theory. I mean, yeah, that goes into it. Yeah, yeah, I love
0: it. Any questions from the crowd? Mm. Go on then, James. Yeah, building on Will's point about the features. Who who, are your readers? Who are your readers? Are they people who are deep craftsmen and women? Or are
1: they people who are kind of seeking maybe escapism like you were when you brought it up? Yeah, I mean, I think it's... Yeah, it's like suddenly I feel like I'm talking to the marketing guy and I'm like, my <laughs> shit. Like, Have you met James before? Yeah, yeah, sell <laughs> Am I trying to sell, you? You trying to sell an ad? Um, <laughs> he doesn't work for Hermes. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, the big thing for us was about people that we found to be inquisitive, for one. It was like people that were looking to kind of explore past the obvious. Um, and and also, if you, you could... you. People that you knew that people had a they had a strong feeling about what they were buying and, and purchasing. So that that became a big part of our audience was like actually you could you could you would know that people would be attracted to a hole and corner on the basis that they were you know, they were buying food from the right not the right places, but certainly from places where they could know know the provenance of what they were buying or there was some certainly um uh, whether it, whether it's clothing or furniture, so we kind of identified that in a way. So you you knew those that that you were tapping into that audience for sure. Uh, I mean, things like the festivals were really fascinating because you came face to face with people, and that was something you didn't really get to do uh, certainly through magazines. And obviously, suddenly you're finding yourself chatting to people. And actually, yeah, there was of course there was a huge amount within the craft community but they're not necessarily a hugely affluent audience. So they're not necessarily going to be buying magazines, but so we had a big audience within, you know, Instagram and the newsletter side of things, because actually that's where people could engage with us more regularly perhaps than, than investing in, you know, what is essentially quite expensive magazine and print. So, so it was, there was always, you know, there were quite different audiences in a way. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it was people who, who people who care, People who, you know, had had a kind of conscience, I suppose, in terms of what they were doing with their 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 own worlds, for sure. Um, hopefully, that was as, as vague an answer as I can get you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, been, it's been a while since I've had to use that one. To be honest, uh, but yeah. Who's a reader? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. Any more questions? Thoughts?
0: How all
1: the young people that you approached, and you've had a whole cast of amazing people, um, craftsmen, did anyone actually say no? Uh, yeah. We Well, they've said no initially, for sure. Um, and after... And then Sam s- called them for five days. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> Ella, yeah. Uh, no, she was great. But no, th- yeah, there definitely were a few people that were quite sceptical about why, like, why we would come and do that. And it would... It, I'm trying to remember if it was specifically, but we certainly, usually once we sent a magazine and they received it, they would understand where we were coming from and that we weren't, like, a tabloid newspaper or something and we weren't going to be telling their story. That said, Richard Batram did, he, he was a bit upset about a few lines and that he was a, a curmudgeon, which didn't go down very well, but, uh, but you know, he, you know, but he was kind of in the fondest possible way. He kind of was quite curmudgeonly, so it was brilliant and, like, we really I enjoyed my visit to him immensely, but um but yeah, I think uh, usually once the magazine landed, it kind of smoothed the road, but it was quite a weird position to find yourself in where you just think actually you just assume people would want to be talked about, but actually it wasn't always the case um, and and that was really refreshing as well. Mm
0: because it was personal you know these are sort of private yeah. individual there were yeah there was that they didn't yeah. have that necessarily that reason or that ambition to have that visibility or publicity I mean I'm making assumptions yeah on I guess so. I mean yeah I mean
1: you know again if when you've certainly when we've documented and photographed you know, people of all ages but certainly when you've worked in that space of, sort of 70s and 80s and 90s and things I guess you know you just kind of go in there a bit like oh wow wow this is so exciting wow look at this space you're amazing wow I want to hear all your stories but ultimately I guess for them they're like yes they've got an amazing amount of knowledge and all these things but they've of course you know you, you never see yourself quite the way you thought you did and so it's whilst I think that portrait of you is incredible they're probably thinking well actually yeah Crikey, I look a bit old now. Or you know, it's like it's sort of, you know, you just you don't think about it from that perspective at the time, and and I think so. You know, that's always that's always kind of a strange one. But um, mm-hmm. but you know, as you get older, you start to realise that yourself, so it becomes a bit easier to to, to level with. But um, okay, another question. No, I was just getting to ask. Do you, <coughs> did you enjoy the people that were? Uh, or enjoyed being with people that were really traditional, kind of going back
0: to the basics? Or did you enjoy doing it because they were trying to explore new techniques to deliver more uh, funky rather than functional, but a bit of both?
1: I mean, to literally reuse your words, a bit of both. um, I mean, was something kind of amazing about visiting some of those old crafts and skills and just thinking like, like how is this a thing like still and and that and that actually the fact that now you know we sort of protect some of these crafts, not quite to the extent that the French and things that you know they, they will protect some of those old crafts and things, but it was yeah, it was pretty incredible seeing some of those old you know I'm trying to think specifically about certain crafts I mean the clog maker again was a kind of reference so jeremy Atkinson who's who was at that time was the last traditional English clog maker working in the UK. The aforementioned Robin Wood, who I mentioned earlier, Robin's daughter then went on to become apprentice for, for um, Jeremy and learnt the skills. But we would take, we would take uh, Jeremy to the festival. We'd take him to Port Elliot Festival and we'd put him out front of the tent and he'd have this like, he'd have this sort of wooden structure, which is a bit like, I guess a trestle table or something. And he'd have this enormous great knife, which is an incredible thing. And basically some logs, and the pile of logs like that, and and then he'd just start carving away on these these logs, and suddenly you'd start to see this clog shape emerge, and there the it was the the bases, the the English ones with the base, and then you would adorn them with leather on top, and and. Um, and people would just sit in amazement. They'd get their beers or whatever, and they'd just sit on the hay bales hay and just watch this guy. And he was really grumpy with it as well. You know, he's a right character, Jeremy. And, you know, people would love come up and ask him a question, and, and they'd sort of regret asking him. But and then, but as it would go on, and like the years would, people would come and then buy some clogs from him. And you'd, you'd watch him and get a piece of paper out, and they would stand on the piece of paper, and he'd draw around their foot, and it'd be like, right, okay, got it you know, call me in a couple of weeks or whatever, you know, and he, but he would literally like make people's shoes at the festival. And, and so he, that was, you know, to see those really old school skills being used. But then again, you know, Bill Amberg was there and he commissioned a pair of shoes from Jeremy at the time. And that was a kind of great combination of somebody who continues to push his craft and, and very much in a contemporary space, but with really traditional skills. And to see those people then get connected through the things that we were doing. That was always really exciting. So, and and that I guess brings me into that space where the traditional skills, but looking at new ways of using those traditions, but bringing perhaps a more contemporary twist on things. That that's been fascinating to see that and actually. Yeah, I
0: mean,
1: yeah, I mean, what they do is 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 really amazing. Um, and Bill's been a you know Bill's since the early days of Hong Kong has been a really big supporter of the magazine and has written for us and has done some stories in the past. And has always his, his him and his team have participated at many of the events we've done over the, over the years as well. Um, but one of the things I noticed was actually this younger generation of, of makers and, and artists and craft folk kind of looking back and thinking, okay, well, I've, I've found these heritage skills. Yeah. How can we use these in, in more contemporary products? and and that was something that when we went to japan for example i was having exactly that conversation with young designers in kyoto who were working with these incredible you know artisans of whether it was um there was, uh weavers uh metal smiths all sorts and they were but they were working with them to cre- create kind of more contemporary twists on on the products and, and and the same thing again when we were we went to this incredible uh, this event that happens in Santa Fe every year in July, and it's um, it's a folk art festival. But it's they basically bring around about one hundred and fifty makers and artists to Santa Fe for a three day event uh, from probably artists from probably fifty yeah probably one hundred and fifty artists from about fifty different countries. So suddenly you're there and you've got weavers from Colombia, you've got shoemakers from Turkey, you've got Indian uh, textile dyers. You know, it was an incredible place to visit. And, but what it was like the most... You get this moment where there's so many... They start to create with each other and they're kind of working together. But then also, once the doors open, suddenly this audience would flood in and these Americans and people that travel the world would literally, like, buy everything. And you're like, wow! I've not, I've never seen that with with craft and things in this country. It was you just don't have that. And they would have this event, and 90 percent of the, it was a non for profit. Uh, apparently, Santa Fe has more non for profit businesses than anywhere else in the world. I think it's like 700 or something in, in what is a relatively small town. But they um, they would they I think it took 3.2 million dollars in, in two and a half days selling craft. Like it was insane. And uh, I just thought, wow, you know, how do you find these people? And the next year we produced a magazine for for their 15th anniversary. It was like, well, (laughs) it would be good to find these people. But at the same time, it was also kind of amazing to celebrate the fact that you suddenly had access to this world of talent in this space. But it was just the way that they all started to collaborate. And and to see it now even um, it was a textile dyer called Porfirio who is based in Oaxaca? His family are based in Oaxaca, in Mexico, and they've been doing traditional weaving techniques and uh, indigo dyeing and textile dyeing. And, and the, the photographs from their their space in Mexico were so beautiful, and the space was just you know everything you could imagine you would want from something, uh, you know, kind of the hilltops of, of uh, in Oaxaca State. But um, but he he moved to California ten years ago and divides his time. But he's literally just had a gallery show of his of his work where he's and it's that you can see that that's that confidence that he's grown in that probably in that last 10 years of developing from a family quite homespun craft Mm -hmm. traditions but actually going how do we make this how do we get this to continue i suppose and how do we you know and inevitably art becomes a way to do that um you know as we've seen with Hazard and Worth have obviously got their gallery, you know, locally. Yeah. It's, it's an art space becomes, I guess, one way of really elevating your work to that way. But, um, but that's why it was also really lovely to see people that were making clogs or, or just basket weaving or whatever, you know, those very traditional skills um, and still a huge amount of appreciation for them.
0: No, mm, yeah, I love that. more questions?
1: If you hadn't moved to Dorset,
0: would the <laughs> have been any different? If you'd stayed in London, would it have be been a different I mean, one? It would
1: definitely would not have happened, for sure. I mean, it definitely... Um, you know, Dorset can't, it can't take all the credit. <laughs> for Dorset, so trying to figure it yeah, yeah, But, no, it definitely wouldn't have happened. It definitely, like... It was... It was... It was a combination, as a, I mentioned, right at the beginning of that thing of... Being out of one's comfort zone, and with that, talking to and experiencing things that you just wouldn't have experienced, and that—that's a creative, obviously—is um, is always a really amazing thing to to do. And you know, why travel and all of those things is so important to try and keep thinking. Um, but it was, yeah, without a doubt, yeah, it definitely wouldn't wouldn't have occurred. I mean, I was definitely spending way too much money on fancy cheese and bread. <laughs> and that doesn't change Bill um, but uh, but um, yeah no it definitely wouldn't have happened
0: love it Sam <clears throat> two final questions okay. um, for those that are going to be listening what's the best way for someone to get in contact with you
1: um, info <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I mean is is um, we have a great team uh, working, so Holly, Amina, Jossie, Tamsin, Jay, Tom, they're all working, um, obviously, along other, other, alongside other projects, but, um, I mean, the best, one recommendation would be the newsletter is a really nice, uh, we produce a Sunday morning newsletter, which we've done every Sunday for the last three and a half years now, which is, um, I, I actually don't have that much to do with it, so I'm always kind of amazed that, they do so brilliantly to get this out because I just, it would have fallen apart if I got involved. But um, that, so signing up to the newsletter is a really, really nice way to be kept up to date with kind of what's going on. And we run a, um, we have a, a cultural calendar. So each month we'll put something out about all the things that Hole and Corner has sort of seen and might be involved in or, uh, or wants to recommend. So, so the newsletter is definitely a really, a really worthwhile kind of first introduction to the world of Hole and Corner. And talking on that timeless subject, obviously uh, the magazines don't tend to be, uh, you know, they are things that last and you can kind of delve back into our archives, certainly through the website, but we also, of course, have a whole host of back issues and things. And yeah, and I think there's, you know, there's nothing better than sitting back with a nice piece of print, definitely beats the kind of uh, digital experience, so... Mm. Bat- That's, uh,
0: batteries don't run out
1: no exactly no, yes.
0: <clears throat> um, final question it, out of it doesn't have to be one um, anybody you'd like to have included on our podcast
1: ooh locally yeah for you to decide well Bill would be a good guy to be Hamburg's um, always, uh, yeah, always yeah he's always and he's you know somebody's motorbike can be down here yeah. in 20 minutes or so so he, he's certainly um always really good value for a conversation. And, and, and as somebody who's kind of been living out in Bruton, I don't know how long he's been in Bruton now, probably I'm guessing maybe somewhere between 15 to 20 years. So definitely as well, a kind of early adopter of getting out of town and, but you know, he's obviously still got his London space. So yeah, Bill would definitely be a good, good person to have a chat with for sure. Cool. Um, I'm sure there's lots of others, but you put me on the spot. I was <laughs> Um, James <laughs>
0: um Sam thanks so much really good to hear the stories I heard variations of them but really good to hear the the backstories and um yeah congratulations again on t10 years and looking forward to seeing where it goes next thank you
1: well that probably was a bit of a ramble chat which is still somebody else's <laughs> line but um, no thanks I really appreciate it thank you thank you all for coming as well